Thank you, brother. It's good to be with you. Open your Bibles up to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. It is good to be with you here in the metropolis of Sharon, Ohio. Excited to be with you this week. Want to continue looking with you at Revelation. We're uh, going to be looking in my sessions in the evening, and uh, I guess next Sunday afternoon, we're going to be looking out of uh, Revelation uh, chapter 1. And uh, just thrilled to be able to share this with you. Uh, we began looking at this just the other afternoon in the 2 o'clock session, and I want to give you, if I can, just a really quick, brief uh, introduction to where, what we're going to be looking at this evening. Um, been studying Revelation for some time now, walking through it and just uh, saturating in it, trying to get handles on what's taking place in this phenomenal book in our New Testament, and uh, really began to study the book of Revelation out of, his own, out of my own personal hobby, kind of a narrow individual, and uh, this was going to be a hobby of mine, studying it and, and uh, walking through it and, and uh, uh, you know, just really getting into the book of Revelation, and the truth that we begin to discover was so overwhelmingly wonderful that uh, begin to uh, share it in these kinds of settings. Uh, one of the significant aspects of studying the book of Revelation is the division of the book, and this is really significant. We're finding that the book of Revelation, in its, one of its basic forms, has three basic sections to it, and this is really important. Uh, you have an introduction that is given, that's a section, an introduction that is given to seven churches in the province of Asia, which is a section, and what is being introduced is the prophecy itself, which is a section. Chapter 1 is the introduction okay, uh, that is given to the seven churches, which means everything taking place in the first chapter is given to us for the purpose of introducing. That introduction again is given to seven churches in the province of Asia. That section is chapters 2 and 3. They are the recipients, and we probably should say the specific recipients of the introduction. Uh, and I say specific recipients because there are aspects of the prophecy that move beyond these seven churches. Uh, we believe this is a circular letter, and also there were churches that are identified for us in the book of Colossians, chapter 4. There were other churches that were present in this day and age that are not mentioned in this prophecy. So this letter applies to them as well, not to mention it applies to us. So the specific recipients are the seven churches, though we benefit from that as well. So you have an introduction given to seven churches in the province of Asia. What's being introduced is the prophecy itself, which begins at chapter 4 and extends to the end of the book. That's what's being introduced. Now, I really found this extremely significant because what he does, in essence, with the introduction is he takes the entire prophecy and he really kind of highlights what he wants these seven churches to swallow in this, first, uh, in this first chapter. In other words, he tries to boil down a prophecy from chapter 4 to chapter 22, that's 18 chapters, he tries to boil that down into one concise chapter. So it's really significant. Uh, some of the highlights of what he's introducing, which will be important for us this evening, are these. The first thing that he really aggressively goes after in the introduction, he introduces, this is big for us, he introduces that the prophecy uh, is not a letter written to seven churches uh, just telling them to hold on tight, that there are a bunch of victims within their hour, and God's coming to get them out of their situation. That's not the book of Revelation. 
The tone of the first chapter has to do with God is, re- is, is, is bringing about His redemptive plan and it's all centered and found in Jesus Christ and He wants them to be a part of that. So the, the tone of the book of Revelation is about the partnering of God's people with Him. In fact, when you begin to look at the, uh, the totality of the redemptive plan of God for the human race, you find that man is an integral part of that redemptive plan. What am I trying to say? Is we are not sitting around watching God as He brings, apart, uh, uh, brings about the redemption apart from us. We are actively playing a role in that redemption. See, that excited you. Um, that's really important for us. Uh, you go back into the book of Genesis and you learn that God created Adam and He created him and placed him in this garden and He, in, in, in a really significant way, Adam was created unique among all of God's creation. And Adam partnered with God in that scene. Of course, Adam fell from the relationship with God. He fell into sin. And you have the story of the Bible leading all the way to the book of Revelation where God is restoring Adam to that position. And and what a person looks like, what God intended for man to look like in a partnering relationship with Him is Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. The first Adam blew it. The second Adam demonstrated what the first Adam was to look like, which is fantastic. So you and I were created to partner with God in this world. Now, when, I, uh, when you go through the first chapter, and it, it brings about questions in my mind, when God says, Jeremiah, I want to partner with you in your day and age, as I'm partnering with these churches in this day and age, I want to partner with you, my first question is, what does that look like? What does God want from me? Uh, how am I to partner? What's my role in that partnering? The language that he uses, it's pretty astounding, the language he uses for these seven churches for their partnering role is lampstand, it's lampstand imagery kind of language. Um, There's a paradigm of ministry in the book of Revelation. The churches are lampstands. And if you wonder where I get that, if you want to look at chapter 1, verse 12, John sees Jesus walking in the midst of the, of the churches, and the churches are called seven golden lampstands. We know that they, are, that they represent the churches, for down at the end of uh, verse 20, the last statement of the first chapter, Jesus himself says the seven churches repre- are represented by seven golden lampstands. So that's, that's imagery partnering language. That God comes to these seven churches and says, Hey, I've got something fantastic and phenomenal that I want to do in your hour and I want you to partner with, uh, with me in that. That you have a significant role in what I want to do in this day and age. And their role is a lampstand. The paradigm for ministry then, the book of Revelation is this. The churches are lampstands and their job as a lampstand is pretty easy. It is to hold up a... And a lamp. And guess who the lamp is in the book of Revelation? Starts with a J, ends with Jesus. Jesus. So the lamp stands, hold up the lamp, which is Jesus, who gives the light, which is the glory of God. Paradigm of ministry. Lamp stands, hold the lamp, which give the light, which is the glory of God. So our role, think about this, our role in ministry as presented in the book of Revelation is to be a lamp stand that holds up Jesus. 
This is our role. This is how we are to partner. Folks, this is significant. This tells us that the tone of every bit of our ministry, everything that goes on in the church is to push Jesus on our world. See, every feeding ministry, every homeless ministry, every dare to care ministry, every Sunday school ministry, every preaching ministry, every Bible school ministry, every small group ministry, name it. Every teen night, every ultimate frisbee, really, yeah. It's everything we're doing in the church, every aspect of our ministry is about holding up Jesus. Um, I really got into this because you have seven churches that are specifically called in their context of ministry to partner with Jesus, and how they are to partner is to hold up a lampstand. We talked about this uh, the other afternoon. This was the content of the first time that I got to speak. We looked at the call of the seven churches, and we found out that they have a unique call that, for instance, the church in Ephesus, which is the church we're going to look at this evening, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, they had a unique call to minister in Ephesus. Uh, that they, they, have a unique, they were uniquely called to stand in the middle of their context of life and hold up Jesus. Um, that's their calling. Each and every one of us in this place this evening are uniquely called to stand in our context and hold up Jesus. That is our ministry. And what's going on in the first chapter, remember, this is an introduction given to seven churches. Okay? John is trying to introduce to them the, the flow and the, and the push of what's going on in the prophecy. The first thing that he tries to convince them of is that they have been called to partner with God. And they are to partner as lampstands. And they are uniquely called to that. That God uniquely calls us to stand in the middle of our world and hold up Jesus. Okay? That is their ministry. Now, I want to look with you this evening at chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 through 6, actually, we're going to save verse 7 for later on uh, in the week. And we're going to look at verse 7 in two parts. But I want to look with you at Ephesus. Because Ephesus, <laughs> Ephesus has a problem. They're not partnering with Jesus. They look like they're partnering with Jesus. Hear this. But they're not partnering with Jesus. See, they look like someone who partners. See, they wear the same kind of clothes that other people who partner with Jesus. Let me give you an easier illustration. See, they've been called to partner as a church. And they look like a church, but they're not a church. They've got all the activities of a church, but they're really not a church. They take offerings like a church takes offerings, but they're not a church. They sing songs like a church sings songs, but they're not a church. Uh, they have certain guidelines and standards and, 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 and principles. I mean, they don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. Uh, they don't lie. They don't steal. They wear the appropriate kind of clothes. So they got all the form of church, but they're not, they're not a church. Because what's a church? In other words, they're going through all the things. They're going through all the religious kind of... But they're not... You'd say, really? Let me read this to you. In fact, if you'd like to follow along with me, I'm reading out of the NIV this evening. And chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, read like this. Jesus approaches them, and He says, These are the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand and walks among 
the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Those are all the things that they're doing, admirable things that they're doing. Go into verse uh, four, uh, 4, excuse me. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen and repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also face. He comes to them and says, listen, you've forsaken your first love, which was him. Remember the height from which you have fallen and repent. And then it's interesting to me that he says, if you don't repent, see, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand. Now, that's not physical language. That's spiritual language, which I probably should explain. Uh, you understand. Most of what we talk about in this kind of setting is not physical. It's spiritual. Um, see, we as a group believe that you can come to church on Sunday morning physically, and yet not come to church on Sunday morning. Okay, let me give you another one. Um, we believe that you can come in this kind of a setting and sing and not participate in worship. They're two different things. So see, what we're, what we're talking about in this kind of settings is not just physical activity of church. We're talking about an encounter with Jesus Christ. See, that's the deal. Ephesus has all of the physical activity of church kind of stuff, but they've forsaken their first love. See, they're not... And Jesus, with spiritual eyes, says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, it's interesting, that's not physical language. It's spiritual. In other words, he says, you can still meet. You can still take up your offerings. You can have your Sunday school classes, you can do your camps, but I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to be involved. And you can be a group that gathers together and be another religious movement, but there's a difference between being a, having a religious movement and a movement of Jesus Christ. You know how many teens? I do less and less teen ministry, but I fight my way back into it. But one of the things that I find in this hour, primarily with the teenagers all the way up through my generation, the uh, late 30s, early 40s, is you have, you have church kids that have been around church for the vast majority of their life and somehow being around the church for the vast majority of their life, they miss Him. You know how many PKs I've met who don't love Jesus? Do you know the statistics of the teens that come to this camp that will graduate and that will never come back? See, these days, stronger than ever, I've made a move away from religious activity, which is what we're talking about this week. I've made a move away from religious activity and back to Jesus. See, Jesus is the focus. Now, the language that he's using, the words and phrases that he uses, of course, they're 2,000 years old. He's talking about a group of people that are no longer being a lampstand. See, they've forsaken their first love. The language that I've been using and playing around with to describe the church at Ephesus is they have spiritually drifted. 
See, they've drifted from Jesus. You'd say, what do you mean by spiritually drift? Uh, spiritual drift, Ephesus is unique among all the churches. You have some churches that are blatantly living in sin. You have sexual morality, you have false teaching, all of that kind of stuff. Folks, that's not Ephesus. That's not the church of Ephesus. See, Ephesus has drifted. Uh, see, spiritual drift, I would describe it like this. I'll describe it with me. I'm a 36-year-old young man. Praise the Lord. I've uh, been traveling in evangelism since 1996, so that's 13 years. My wife and I live on the road. I'm an extremely narrow individual. I mean, I'm in church five days a week, 48 weeks out of the year, and it's 48 instead of 52 because people cancel me. And so, you know what I'm going to be doing for the next three years. Hey, what's going on Saturday? Never mind, I already know. I'm, I'm, a, very in, I'm a very narrow individual. The likelihood that I will wake up, the likelihood that you will wake up tomorrow morning and out of the blue, after serving Jesus, living for Jesus beyond 13 years, some of you 30 and 40 years, the likelihood of you waking up in the morning and saying, Man, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. <laughs> it's just, it's not going to happen. It's unlikely. It's not going to take place. See, that would be apostasy. See, that would be rejection, rejection of Christ. See, we're, we're, the, the church that we're dealing with here with Ephesus is not a church that's a newly established church. This church has tradition. See, they've got patterns. See, they've got existence. Ephesus is one of the few churches in the province of Asia that we have a lot of history on in our New Testament. Do you know where the first place that Ephesus is talked about in our, in our New Testament? You can go all the way back prior to the letter of Ephesians. You can go all the way back to Acts, and I want you to do it. You can go all the way back to Acts chapter 19. But I want you to go a little bit further back to Acts chapter 15. Ephesus was talked about, most scholars would suggest, and it depends on the timetable, so I'll just give you what I believe, uh, which of course is right. But um, you can go back probably about 50 years prior to the book of Revelation to the origins of the church in Ephesus. This is a 50-year-old church who has now, 50 years later, and stay in Acts, we're going to look at it in a second, but 50 years later, they have spiritually drifted. Okay? See, they're not, Ephesus is not the church that has renounced Christ. They're not the church that's going to uh, uh, wake up one morning and say, I'm no longer following Jesus. They're not even the church that is still trying to figure out their doctrinal beliefs. See, they're an established movement. The biggest danger for the church in Ephesus and what they're going through now, and the biggest danger of the group that's been coming to church all their life, it's the, it's, it's the danger of spiritually drifting from Jesus. I don't know what language you want to use for that, but maybe comfortableness? Becoming stale? Doing things because you've always done them? See, it's a spiritually drifting from the person. It's a drifting from Jesus. 50-year-old church. If you go back to the book of Acts, you begin to see where Ephesus uh, began. You see how, how Ephesus began? You see uh, the, 
just remarkable circumstances that took place. As you go back to chapter 15, because in chapter 15 you actually have the commissioning of Paul and Barnabas. Um, they were not appointed as ministers to uh, the Gentiles, and you could say that perhaps, but they were recognized as ones who were called to go minister to the Gentiles. And so the church uh, council uh, votes on them and commissions them and encourages them and says, hey, we believe in you, recognize what God is doing, and sends them out. Now, there's some, uh, there's some difficulty they're going to run into uh, very quickly where Paul and Barnabas have a disagreement over a fellow named Mark and they, uh, they divide their forces and Barnabas takes... And it's overstated by, I believe, um, some people. Uh, Barnabas takes Mark and he goes on a missionary, uh, his whole missionary deal, which is fantastic. And the, we have a lot of information on, on Mark and Barnabas in the early centuries and how God used them and it was wonderful. We have more inf uh, information on Mark because the ones who were recording this, okay... Uh, specifically Luke, is with Paul. And so Paul takes uh, his uh, group and uh, Silas is a part of that and they go on. You begin to read about some of the towns that they go through and some of the, the ministry that they're a part of and it's remarkable. Uh, very, uh, you're probably very familiar with um, uh, Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas are in prison and that movement of God that took place. But they continue on in ministry until you finally you reach chapter 19. Now what takes place in chapter 19 is that Paul and his group run into a group of people that they have received the baptism of John, meaning that they have come out and repented. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. They repented. They came out and they turned from to a whole brand new thing. And Paul says, have you received the new thing? And they're like, no, all we've received is the baptism of John. And so Paul lays his hands on them and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and just a remarkable outspill of the ministry of Jesus Christ takes place in Ephesus and you have a just, I mean, you could probably say thousands of people were saved. Um, you can read through all of that, though we will not do that tonight. Some highlights of what took place, if you want to scroll down with your finger to verse 11, it said, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Uh, he goes on and he talks about, um, it's the drachma statement. That you had people in the group that were surrendering their scrolls uh, who, had, who had worshipped in, in, rich, uh, in witchcraft. Well, I lost it at this point, but it's actually in verse 19. And uh, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. Now, you don't have to know how much a drachma is to say that's a lot of drachma. But a drachma is one day's wage. So you can imagine the spiritual impact that took place. Folks, this is where Ephesus began. Get this, teens. See, this was the revival. This is where the believers surfaced in Ephesus and where the church actually began. Now, they immediately uh, ran into to difficulty and to uh, 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 you know, persecution. You have a riot that begins and, and Paul flees for his life and he leaves and goes on his journey. I want you to flip over another chapter down actually um, to uh, chapter 20. 
And in the middle of chapter 20, Paul is being pressed by the Spirit, he tells the Ephesians uh, in this little address. He's being pressed by the Spirit to go on to Rome. He knows that he's going to be there. He knows he's never going to see them again. So he wants to talk to them personally. Now he says some things, and we're reading this on, uh, for a purpose. He says some things, some things to them in verse 17 of chapter 20. He is left because of the riot. This is some time later. He's on his way back. He makes a stop on purpose to visit the Ephesians. Has them all gathered there. And it says in verse 17, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he goes on to tell them, Hey, you know how I lived. You can just hear the passion in his voice. You know how I lived and the passions of my heart and, and what I went after. And, and then he goes on down in verse 22 and he begins to compel them about some specifics that they're going to run into. He wants to go, that he wants them to guard themselves from. Specifically, when you come down into verse 28 of this address, he says, "Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he brought bought with his own blood." He says, "After I leave you, I know that savage wolves will come in among you." and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Be on your guard. If you go back, really, really important, if you go all the way back to Revelation, 50 years later, they are, they are still maintaining that command. In fact, one of the prizes that Jesus gives them or one of the compliments that He gives them is I know you cannot tolerate wicked men that you've tested those who've claimed to be apostles and are not and have found them false. See, they're still doing that. See, the revival, it's, it's, it's the grandparents, if you will, the ones that God moved upon and lives were changed and they have all of this instruction given to them and the things that they were doing at first were done out of a love for Jesus and what God had done in their heart and... Fifty years later, they're still doing all of those things. But see, they've, they've drifted. It's not been about Him. It's been about, well, why do you do that? Well, praise the Lord, we've always done that. They, they've drifted. We won't do it. But see, you could go through the book of Ephesians. And everything that Jesus looks at the church in Ephesus and says, I know your deeds... I know what you're doing. Hey, I know that you're doing this. I know that you're doing that. I know it. See, all the things he says I know you're doing were things that Paul commanded their grandparents to do. It's amazing to me. See, they're doing all the things their grandparents did, but their grandparents did it because it was revival and God was moving and wow, and lives were changed. And see, their grandkids are doing it because, well, that's the way we've always done it. They've spiritually drifted. I, I believe absolutely with all my heart that when you spiritually drift from Jesus while maintaining all of the precedents of the church, what you drift in is something we call legalism. See? That's what legalism is. Legalism is doing all the things that we do not for Jesus, but it's an absence of Jesus. Now, of course, teenagers look at me and say, we're not legalistic. <laughs> no, of course not. And adults are going to look at me and say, well, I'm not legalistic. But you understand, one of the things that I've been finding in my own life, it creeps in on you. It is so easy to spiritually drift from Jesus. Try this on for size. Think about this, teens. One of the things that I've been wrestling with in my own life 
is the difference between a legalistic Christianity and the language that I'm using in these days is what I would call a relational Christianity. I believe New Testament thoroughly is what we would call relational Christianity. You'd say, what's the difference? See, legalistic Christianity is law, it's rule, it's tradition. And you understand, when we're talking about specifically tradition, tradition's not bad. And if you say, I have no tradition, well, that's your tradition. Okay, so, I mean, hey, tradition's not bad. We all have it. You can't get away from it. In fact, every one of us are called by God, I believe, to stand in tradition. That's how we interpret Scripture. I mean, the reason you're here today probably is because you have parents or grandparents or some affiliation. The tradition of the church has led you here. Tradition is not bad. To stand in tradition is not bad. To be a slave of tradition is legalism. Very real, there's a very real difference. See, Jesus is my tradition. To be enslaved to tradition and not enslaved to Jesus is legalism. So I've been moving away in my life, personally. I've been moving away in my life, I believe, called by God, what He's talking to Ephesus about in Revelation chapter 2. I've been moving away from a legalistic Christianity into a relational Christianity. And you would say, what's the difference between a legalistic Christianity and a relational Christianity? Let me give you a couple examples. Let me finish before you start throwing things. Um, went to a church. And I uh, won't tell you where they were at. Showed up. I thought it was kind of strange that they would ask me. Uh, I wonder if that's how they begin all their conversations with new people that they meet. I show up on Saturday morning and um, getting ready. Some people were at the church. They're making signs and stuff. And I said, I'm sitting at my table inside, getting everything hooked up. And, and uh, they said, hey, what are you guys doing on Monday? I was like, well, I, you know, service in the evening. I don't know really what my wife has planned. She does the schedule. And they said, would you like to go pick it with us? I'm like, oh, really? You're going to go pick it? Well, I guess it depends on what you're picketing. They said, we're going down to the courthouse. They're going to take down the Ten Commandments. I said, really? What time what time's all that taking place? She's about, he goes, about noon. It's all right. Noon came on Monday. You could see them all down on one side of the street with their signs saying not to take down the Ten Commandments. You got the church on this side and a bunch of people over here. You got a few, few liberal riffraff on this side. They've got their signs. The church is sitting over there and they're going, where is Jeremiah? He said he'd be down here. And they're looking around. And all of a sudden one goes, hold on. What is, who is that over there? And they look on the other side of the street with the liberal riffraff and they say, that's the evangelist right over there. And I'm standing on the other side of the seat with my, with my sign. Tear him down! That was probably a little too loud. But tear him down! You're going to need me to explain that. I wasn't on the other side of the street saying tear him down. I was actually on the way to Walmart and we had to walk on that side of the street and they saw me and it was deafening. But I didn't show up to pick about saving the Ten Commandments. Do you know why? The Ten Commandments, you understand, and they have to understand this, the Ten Commandments are Old Covenant law. You don't live according to the Ten Commandments. 
You cannot live according to the Ten Commandments. You cannot measure up. Your flesh will not enable you to live according to the Ten Commandments. First off, it's, not, it's bigger than just the Ten Commandments. We're talking about the law, the first five books of the Bible. And you can't just single out the Ten Commandments. Now immediately you're going to look at me and I can see you talking to your wife. He murders. I know that he does. <laughs> well, let me ask you. Ten Commandments. Relational Christianity. Does Jesus murder? Well, no. So I don't murder. He steals. Does Jesus steal? Well, no. The law is not bad. The law is not evil. The law will never pass away. Well, I thought you said you didn't live according to law. I live according to Jesus, and the Spirit of Jesus lives in my life. And when He lives in my life, the Spirit of the law is fulfilled in a relationship with Him. It's a very real difference. And people would say, well, then you still live according to the law through Jesus. We call it in the New Testament relational context, response. See, I don't live according to rule or law. I live according to response of Jesus. In fact, the New Testament tells me that He takes the law and He applies it in a way that I can never apply it. See, when you live according to the law, it says, do not kill. That's a pretty easy one. I won't kill. I felt like it today, but I won't kill. I won't kill. And living under the law, you apply that, which is flesh. Your flesh cannot apply that. Under the relationship with Jesus, as we see, do not kill. And I look at him and say, hey, I don't have the capacity to control the insides. Would you come and apply that through the Spirit in a way that I could never apply it? And he writes that on the fleshly tablets of my heart. I'm not that radical, folks. We believe this. See, I've moved away from legalistic Christianity and I've moved into relational Teens, adults, legalistic Christianity does not work. You can't do it in a, in a relational New Testament context. I'll give you an example. I'm struggling with how to raise my son in this. And I got some illustrations on some studies that we're currently in in this same, in this same church we'll look at later on this week if they let me preach again. But... Uh, how do I raise my son outside of the confines of don't do that, break the rule, in a relational context? I've thought a lot about this with dating. See, in a dating relationship, if you live, and we're adults in here so we can talk about this. Thank the Lord for children's services. In a dating context, I've heard so many times people try to squeeze teens or teens try to squeeze teens in a legalistic form of dating. You say, what do you mean by a legalistic form of dating? Well, what's the, what's the rule in dating? The rule is, I think, and maybe we should establish it, how far can you go in a dating relationship between a girl and a guy before you enter into, this, into sin? See, biblically we know that we know the line. Okay? We, know the, we know the line in relationship, what constitutes a sin. But how far, how close can you get to that line before it's sin? See, if you live in a legalistic form of Christianity, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to teach that to your kids. It's not just sex. Sex is the line. How far can you, how close can you get to that before you enter sin? 
If you're living a legalistic form of Christianity, you're going to have to do that. But I'm telling you, you'll never win. Because how close can you get? See, no one ever wants to answer. Let's do it this way. Let's settle this this evening. Let's start back from the line. Let's say conservative. How many in this room held hands before they were married and think that's appropriate in the dating relationship? Teens, make sure you watch. How many of you held hands? Oh, liberals, I tell you what. <laughs> and you understand, some look at us as liberals. I've been to teen camps where literally uh, dating ki uh, kids that are dating can't hold hands, they hold a stick between each other. That wasn't a joke. That was serious. And some of the, I mean, we've heard, and hey, I'm not knocking that. That's their rule. That's what they want to do. Go at it. Live like that. But obviously, you're more liberal than that. So holding hands is okay. Let's, uh, let's bring it in a little bit. Who here, before they were married, just... That's it. <laughs> Don't lie. That's a sin. Lying's a sin. Okay? We'll stop. How far, how far can you get? Who's going to set the law? Who's going to set the rule? See, what do you do with making out? You'd be shocked and startled at some of the places where we go where clothing is optional. As long as you don't... See, we're in Indiana. No, we're not. We're in Ohio. <laughs> see, I was, I was born in Indiana. Uh, there's, uh, you guys have heard of the Bible Belt? See, I was born, uh, well, it wasn't the Bible Belt. You, uh, the, you, uh, the Bible Belt has the buckle. And then, you know, the buckle, there's the clasp. And then there's the hole that the little clasp goes in. I was born in that little hole right there. Okay? Northeastern Indiana. Very conservative area. Okay? And it was just... I moved from there to California. Do you understand how much of a shocker that is? Do you understand how different the country is in the Midwest from the Northeast and the Northwest? It shock you and startle you. See, the laws that we live by here are not laws that we... Where do you draw the line? See, we're going, this week at, at a Nazarene General Assembly, they're trying to take a worldwide consensus of what... Do you know how that difficult is? How difficult that is? Even in this very own room, we can keep it within this own room, there's different opinions on, on rules and all of those. See, you're just... Who's going to make that rule? Biblically, we could say that the elders in the church made the rules back then. So I should tell you teens that all the 65 year and older in this room should make that law. What do you guys think? Because if we don't limit it to this room, should we just go out in the entire towns of Sharon and Wadsworth and take a general consensus of anybody who says they love Jesus and we'll just kind of boil that down? And I'm, Hear this. If you, if you confront those kinds of questions with a legalistic rule kind of mentality, you're not going to win. You'd say, well, then how does that work in a relational mentality? See, the relationship of the New Testament is I come to Jesus and say, hey, you have created me. You have created me and my wife to be one. And I want to see her the way that you see her. 
I want to I walk with her the way that you would walk with her. I want to see her not through man's eyes, but through your eyes. And the moment in my life, and by the way, this you understand sexual morality not only takes place before marriage, it can take place after marriage. See, any time I cease to see my wife the way that he created her to be, sin was born. Any time she ceases to be an object that was created for him, a sacred prize of him, any time she turns from that to become something that I handle and I control, sin is born. So dating is just, hey, I don't want to see my significant other with any other eyes than your eyes. I want to see the way you see and feel the way you feel and hear the way you hear and See, that's the... One more quick one. I can't tell you what this has been doing in my life because I've been finding all kinds of areas that I, folks that I live, and I'm a 36-year-old, most people would consider me pushing the envelope on things, but I'm so, I'm so legalistic on things. In other words, there are areas of my life that I've drifted from Jesus and I don't. it's no longer a Jesus thing, it's a bound to my... My wife, we were, uh, can I share this? We were uh, pulled up at this church a few, few uh, it was a couple months ago, and, and uh, we were going through a real difficult time with the kids. We were all sick for a month out there in Oklahoma, and it was brutal. I got up in the morning, I'm a morning person. Uh, I get up, I go over to the church, I usually get there first, I got a key, I go in, uh, go and walk in the sanctuary, I'm praying, and getting a feel for the sanctuary, ah, oh, it's going to be great, thinking about the week, make sure the table's set up alright, and meet the pastor when he comes in, and uh, uh, the worship team, and, and all doing all that kind of stuff, and, and Sunday school starts, and I don't go to Sunday school anymore because I help my wife with the kids in the morning, and so uh, it's uh, about, church starts at 1030 and about 10, about 10 after 10, I come back over, grab the kids, help my wife. We come over, put them in the nursery, and so we can be in the service five or 10 minutes till. Well, I come back over, and I walk in, and my daughter is still in her high chair, and she's got cereal all over her. My son is laying in bed in his pajamas, and Krenda's sitting on the couch drinking a cup of coffee. And I walk in, I'm, I'm a little uptight. Because I'm ready to get over to church. And I ask her, I say, um, well, it's beautiful outside today. Small talk. You about ready to go to church this morning? I see we're running a little bit behind. And she looks at me and very casually says, I'm not going this morning. Which means i got to go and lie to the pastor again. Yeah. My wife died last night. I apologize. And she can't. Be, she can't be with us today. And, and um, I'm a little irritated about it. I don't say anything. I was like, "Okay, dear." And <laughs> she sits there and laughs at me because she knows and she can read me. And I turn around and I'm thinking, "Why don't you want to go to church on Sunday?" And she says, "I've heard that sermon 15 times since you started preaching it." Not to mention that I'm going to go to, we're going to have five services this week. Jeremiah, I'm going to be at four of them. Why should I go to this one this morning when, I, when CJ's still sick in bed? Elena just got over being sick. I haven't slept hardly any this last week. See, why is this morning, Sunday morning, by the way, this doesn't apply to you, this applies to me. When you start going to church five days a week, you can make this kind of a call. 
But she says, why is this morning more important than Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, or Thursday night? And I, of course, my response came out of, because Sunday morning's more spiritual than the rest of the week. Because God moves on Sunday morning in a way that He can't move on Sunday night. And I got convicted about all that. And as usual, I sat there dumbfounded looking at her when she's right and I'm wrong, and I just turned and went over to church on Sunday morning. And I was, God dealt with me on that. See, I was so bound, I was so... Are you with me on this? See, I just, I'm wondering this evening. See, what's the motivation of your heart in all of this? See, why do you do the things that you do? What drives you? I'm, I'm coming to a point in my life where I want to be absolutely, unequivocally, completely, absolutely, fanatically Jesus Christ oriented and Jesus Christ centered. That everything that I do in my life comes out of a relationship with Jesus. That I'm not saying that tradition's bad. I'm a part of tradition. And even though my language may be different than yours, I don't think rules are bad. But see, everything in my life is going to come from a response with Jesus Christ. Because what we're finding in the Scriptures and what I'm finding with the church at Ephesus is you have a whole group of people that have worked like a dog and have laid it down and they haven't stopped and they're the biggest church in the province of Asia and they got the most things going on, the biggest ministry, the best drums and all of this kind of stuff. They're doing all the things that churches do and Jesus looks and says, man, I wish I'd be a part of it. Because you have spiritually drifted from me. <laughs> what? Did I, did I twist it? <laughs> I wish I could be a part of it. Jesus, we love you this evening. What's it going to take in our day, Lord, to keep us from drifting from you? Both in the teen services and in the adult services this week. Father, in the entire ministry that's taking place here at Sharon Camp. I just, man, I want it to ring of you. I want you to be our motivation. I want you to be our drive. I want you to be our instigation. I, would, I want my life. I want, I want my parenting of my kids. I I want the relationship that I have with my wife. I, I want my ministry with presenting the words to teens. and Every single area of ministry, every context I find myself in, I want to be relationally driven. I want to find freedom. <laughs>